when I'm painting somebody, and this really gets us into work in the past, you know, 10 years, which I really think is my, my life's work. A lot of the early stuff was just experimentation that when I'm engaged with the person over a period of time, there's something that happens, something that's very intimate and very real, kind of undeniable. The friendship starts to develop. I start to tell stories. They start to tell stories. We get to know each other. And there is this kind of coming together that I, I hope is kind of encoded or built into the painting as sort of bringing together of two lives. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 206th episode, David Stanger joins me from Pittsburgh, where we talk all about his paintings, which explore contemporary portraiture. He does a lot of drawing and all sorts of representational work. We're going to talk a bit about that coming up. If you've never heard Studio Break, I want to invite you to check out studiobreak.com. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's work as well as links to their websites. You can listen to the interviews right in the default player. Just click play or hit that iTunes hyperlink and subscribe to the podcast that way. We are on social media, so be sure and like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break and on Instagram at Studio underscore Break, so please say hello there. Quick note that I'm going to be announcing a type of painting giveaway, so make sure you're staying tuned to those credits at the end. And with that out of the way, here is our interview with David Stanger. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, David Stanger. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. How are you? Excellent. You know, we've been chit-chatting for a bit. I got coffee that's very hot, so um, it'll allow you to <laughs> speak a lot. <laughs> Good. So, again, I, I usually like to start off just by a little bit of the background. Again, it seems like you've uh, kind of dwelled in Pittsburgh uh, most of your life. Is that kind of accurate? or? Yeah, that is that is true. Yeah, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh. My, my family's originally, my mom and dad are both from New York City, so mm -hmm. we're kind of transplants here. They, they moved here in the, in the 60s. I left Pittsburgh after high school to go to Syracuse University, where I did my undergraduate degree, and then I moved back to Pittsburgh for about a year and a half or so. I was kind of like making work, thinking about graduate school, and then I moved to Baltimore to study at Maryland Institute College of Art uh, in the Hofburger School of Painting, and then we moved to Philly, my wife and I, and we lived there for a few years and then came back to Pittsburgh. So I've been back here now maybe... I don't know, 12 years or so. But I, I will say that when I left, I never thought uh, I was going to come back. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> My memory of Pittsburgh in the 80s um, and 90s was that it was kind of a, you know, a little rough around the edges. We lost like a, a third of our population when U.S. Steel closed. So it's a small city to begin with. But when U.S. Steel closed, the city just sort of you know, imploded in a way, or, you know, there was this kind of vacancy. And so that was kind of part of my thinking that we're this post and struggling post-industrial city and what kind of life could I have here as an artist, you know? And so I thought Pittsburgh couldn't be that place. But when we moved back here, so my wife could go to graduate school and I, and I saw a city that had really kind of reinvented itself, you know, and it was kind of the best move that we could have ever made, you know, really things have worked out quite well, but the city has been, home to me for most of my life. It's got some great resources, some beautiful museums like the Carnegie Museum and the Frick Museum, the, the Warhol Museum, the Mattress Factory, our newer, newer uh, institutions. But, you know, there's this kind of rich cultural quality. But as far as the gallery scene, it's, you know, it's kind of it's growing, but it's still, you know, it doesn't have the same kind of 
life as a place like Philadelphia or Chicago, New York, certainly doesn't you know, hold a candle to that. So in that way, it's, it's kind of a, a, a small city, but there are a lot of really interesting artists here, interesting you know, artist cooperatives. And I think that's what makes it you know, an exciting place to be. Uh, all, the, all the young artists and startups and uh, a kind of sense of supportive community. I think that that's all been really surprising and positive. You know, when, when I was growing up, there were no artists in my family, but it was something that was seen as, as a great positive quality to living, just like writing novels or, uh, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, sort of taking these deep dives into creativity. My, my mom's a librarian, so I grew up in libraries and around books. And, and so I, I think this idea of being a creative person was seen as a virtue, as something that's great importance to, to, to society. And so even though there were no visual artists in, in my family, when I started to move in that direction, even fairly early in life, it was, it was supported. It was seen as a, as a, as a really positive avenue. Sure. Yeah. And so I was always drawing when I was a kid. Uh, it was just, it was always just there. And I think also there are these stories that, you know, all kids can kind of build into illustrated books, you know, but that was something that was really important to me. And I could spend hours you know, just looking through images after images and wherever I could find them, I would dig them up. So I think it's just kind of like visual literacy and being engaged with that imaginative space was just kind of part of part of who I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know why for some reason earlier when I was thinking about it, I would just imagine like you were the kid in class that's like David can draw it. You know, like right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that's, some that's definitely true. Yeah. some kind of hyper realism. Like right. yeah, I used to draw comics. And uh, and then at some point in junior high, I used to draw like images from album covers for kids, you know. So I like mm-hmm. get extra money for for lunch or something. And, like, <laughs> I get some treats for myself. But, yeah. Well, so in kind of thinking of that, did they encourage you then to kind of you know pursue it as like a career? Then you were like, I'm going to be an you know a painter, an illustrator, a comic book maker, or something like that. In terms of kind of like leaving like a high school experience to start you know studying at a university. Uh, yeah, I think I think they they did see that this was something that was pretty important to me, and so and yeah, I think they were supportive of it. I, I imagine as parents, they were probably a little nervous. I mean, mm-hmm. like you know, sure, having having managed to carve out a, a life for myself as an artist, which I'm very happy about. Um, if my son, who's now nine, at some point decided he wanted to be an artist, I would probably pause for a second and be like, "Are you sure you want to do that?" You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I think they, you know, they were they saw that it mattered to me. And so they, so they supported it, but I'm sure there was some apprehension to some degree. You know, I, I think part of it was that I just so strongly identified as an artist by the time I was in high school. I mean, this was just part of who I was. I know what kind of career path I was going to take. I had no, no concept, you know, I mean, like, how, how do you actually make a career as an artist? That wasn't something I really understood. I just knew that I wanted to do it. I remember reading, well, when I was like 16 or so, I read Lust for Life, which is a a sort of fictional biography of Vincent van Gogh written by Irving Stone. Mm-hmm. And it was based on the letters uh, between Vincent and Theo. And that that idea about sort of dedicating your life to the arts and to this kind of emotional, almost spiritual kind of devotion to images and the history of painting, that was really an attractive idea to me. But 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 I would also say that there was something about being an artist that tied into this kind of concept of counterculture in a way, right? I mean, this idea of how tradition and expectations are sometimes in conflict with 
you know, in, in individualism. And, and I think like the idea that was that came through in uh, Lust for Life uh, novel was this idea of, of Van Gogh as a kind of, I don't know, mystic almost, you know, he was this kind of mystical uh, figure, uh, a cultural mystic, like on the outside looking out, a visionary in a way. Mm-hmm. And all of that was like super, super exciting to me as an idea that we could live our life on this kind of, I don't know, quest isn't the right word, but a sort of uh, a deepening of life through through painting. And, and you know, the other thing I would say that in high school, I struggled a little bit with depression. And so painting in a way kind of helped me to work through some of those things, not just as therapy, but as a kind of deepening of ideas so that I could kind of find a greater sense of purpose, a greater sense of uh, clarity about my life. And I think I saw that same struggle in Vincent in a way. So that, that to me was like really uh, pretty significant. It kind of gave me some sense of how I could shape my life. And then when I started visiting colleges, I went to Syracuse as a family friend had recommended this. Oh, there's this guy there. He's a painter. He's really pretty great. You should go check it out. But I didn't know that they were talking about Jerome Whitkin, and I certainly mm-hmm. hadn't seen his work before. Um, but I went to visit, and there was a, a retrospective of his work up in the Syracuse University galleries. And I walked in, and I was like, holy crap. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am. And this is kind of amazing. You know, This is where I want to go to school, and I, I want to study with him. You know, So that I think that also gave me a great sense of direction in life. And J- Jerome was a, a tough teacher. You know, he expected a lot from us. And I think that kind of le- that work ethic and that, the professor generally, the culture there, you know, we were going to like put ourselves into our work and really get something out of it, you know. But Jerome used to ask us, you know, how bad do you want it? Uh, like, how bad do you, do you want it as bad as Michelangelo? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Do you want it as bad as Kathy Kollwitz? You know, what, what's driving you? You know, make images that matter. And I, I think all of that kind of continued this idea that I had about how I could live as an artist. But it was, it was also during that time when I, I realized I admired many of my professors there. And I realized that maybe, you know, I could be a professor someday. And that, that, that started to get me to starting to think about, well, maybe, you know, if I, if I take the right steps, maybe I could be a professor one day too. And so, um, I think that's really where it started. You know, the idea of having a career in the arts started to merge with this kind of larger romantic concept of what it is to be an artist and contribute into the arts in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, again, it's interesting for me because in, in my experience, um, the program kind of also kind of shifted away from representation and, and realism quickly. And I would imagine, mm. you know, some of those pitfalls or things that people, maybe more contemporary artists in terms of just, you know, experimenting with um, uh, postmodernism or, you know, conceptual art kind of move past these things very quickly. You know, like mm-hmm. what's realism? You know, what's what's that about? I would imagine you must have just gravitated towards this and just used it as a, an experience to kind of really, you know, push your skill set and, and what you could do with these materials that you were studying. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I took figure drawing from day one all the way through. And so almost every day of the four years I was there, I was drawing the figure in, you know, in some way. And um, I was painting abstractly for a little bit when I was there. And I took some video classes and I was experimenting and trying different stuff, but figure drawing or drawing the human likeness was central to what we were doing. And I think, I think that training or more to the point that education uh, or thinking about how the description of the human form through paint, through mark making kind of plays out through history and how we're kind of part of that 
dialogue. That that is like you know so important, and I'm I'm really grateful that I kind of found myself in in that circumstance because I know a lot of people did not have that the opportunity to study that. You know, they they like you said they just sort of skirted right past it as though it's sort of water under the bridge, but. You know, there's this term that's, that's thrown around around in contemporary criticism, and I think Jerry Saltz might have been the first one to to use it, where he talks about this idea of, of zombie formalism, right? Mm-hmm. That it feels like, you know, abstract expressionist painting, for instance, right? But but it doesn't have the same kind of complexity. It doesn't have the same kind of sense of life, you know, under the surface. So it has all the trappings, all the basic markings of good abstraction, but it just is hollow. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that comes from the idea that, you know, William de Kooning and uh, uh, Jackson Pollock, Philip Gustin, you know, they were all trained as artists in the way that we're describing it, say they drew from life. And they spent time kind of struggling through that and thinking about Masaccio and thinking about, you know, Delacroix and all of these kind of heavy hitters. And that informed their decisions as a painter, you know. Mm-hmm. So like when they're when they're making these kind of lyrical figurative abstractions, it comes from the experience of looking at a form in space, you know. And so that's something that's really important to me as a teacher, too. And this idea of having my students look at objects at forms and space to react to a living person instead of a photograph you know because i think if we if we learn just by drawing from photographs then we kind of lose some of the experience of understanding form and space you know as a, as a kind of somewhat concrete example in our freshman year at syracuse we all took foundation classes together so we were all like very bauhaus kind of structure so we all took classes together, and then our sophomore year, we sort of moved into our majors. And for me, it was painting. Other people went into illustration. And illustration and painting were very different programs at Syracuse. They were on different floors. And in our freshman year, we were all together kind of doing our thing. And then by the time we hit junior year, a lot of the illustration majors had been drawing from photographs and making really kind of interesting work, but they didn't have a lot of experience or the same amount of time spent drawing the figure. So that when we met each other again in junior or senior year in a, in a figure drawing class, they didn't have the same kind of responsive, you know, ability mm-hmm. with the figures. Not to say that they couldn't, it's just that they they had not sort of built that up over time. And I saw that as like a, a kind of a marker, like the way they were struggling through that. And so t- to me, Pedagogically speaking, it's re- I, I saw that and I said, ah, okay, you know, here are two people that are both very talented, but you know, <laughs> they have a different way of reacting to to life and to drawing. And so, photography is a tool, but it can also, I think, restrict kind of people's understanding of pictorial space. So, and again, I'm I'm really thankful for having had that opportunity. You know, I I think also Jerome. When we were drawing the figure, it wasn't just a technical exercise. And also this guy named Gary Trento I took a lot of classes with him. He's a really interesting figurative painter. And in a way, sort of like Philip Perlstein paintings, a little bit mm-hmm. tighter, a little bit more about the figure in an, in an interior environment. But Jerome in particular talked about the idea of finding sort of emotional meaning and content in the description of form, you know, that it wasn't just about kind of rendering form. It was about trying to find through the marks some kind of significance you know to it and to him you know that was a kind of sometimes over you know theatrical kind of staging of you know dramas but but i also think that just by looking at maybe some of michelangelo's you know drawing for the sistine chapel like the way that the back would kind of 
have this kind of undulation, this beauty, this life, this muscular kind of force to it, that it wasn't just about describing the form. It was about something much deeper than that, you know, a kind of humanistic view of you know, translating the human likeness onto the, onto the page. And I think a lot of what we, what we did there, I tried to bring into, into my own teaching in my classrooms. And I think in that way, it, the drawing and painting program you know, may, might be different than many other programs in the area in the sense that it focuses on this kind of long view of art history, you know, <laughs> and sure. again, it's not to say that I'm, I'm trying, I'm like a revivalist or something, you know, like I'm trying to revive the French Academy or something, you know, I, <laughs> that's not it. But I, but I think I'm very aware of modernism. I embrace a lot of the ideas there, but, but I also think that if students aren't exposed to these, these kind of longer views that somehow, you know, they'll have a more myopic understanding of, of art. When I was in graduate school, I did encounter some artists that, for all ostensible purposes, art started in the 1900s, you know? And, sure. And, and I, I, I found that to be confusing, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm very aware of Duchamp. I've done quite a lot of reading. I worked as a curator and, and, and an arts writer for a little bit. You know, so it's not that I'm not aware of that kind of the, the, the lineage of Duchamp and the modernists. You know, that, that became sort of the new academy in a way, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we kind of forget about <laughs> all of the other lessons sort of learned through during, um, painting, I think we're, we're kind of missing a big part of the story. Yeah, it's not to say that Western painting is some kind of perfect, virtuous thing. Certainly it's not. But I, what I try to do in my classes is to engage students with this kind of you know, ability to see and think critically. And part of that, to me, is understanding the tradition of drawing the figure, which is, you know, I think central to art history. I mean, faces and bodies and seeing ourselves in artwork, that is a big part of human culture and human psychology. You know? No, absolutely. And again, I kind of agree in, in the, the sense too, I remember in graduate school, just kind of thinking like, especially, and again, I kind of enjoy everything just because I feel like kind of be open to different ideas and, you know, being able to kind of, um, fluctuate to kind of be able to look at uh, different perspectives. But I just kind of remember thinking, you know, studying postmodernism, like, well, it seems like a lot of people just don't know their history. Right. <laughs> I would be the first one to throw myself under the bus there. You know, I, f I feel like yeah. I'm always, you know, somebody that could be much more studied. But, you know, you were just kind of talking and describing about the, the depths of exploring the figure and all of these different, you know, interactions in terms of expressing emotion and you know, all those types of things in terms of kind of like considering your, your schooling experience. I know also that you, I want to say studied in, in Italy. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Syracuse university has a campus there. Uh, another thing I didn't really know until, until I, mm -hmm. I got there, you know, but they, they have a campus in Florence. They have a, be a beautiful studio building, an academic building. And then I lived with three other American students, one of whom was a classmate of mine. And so Really, almost the entire cohort of our uh, painting major went at once to, to Florence. And so we all, maybe like 18 of us or something, all went together. And that was, that was pretty amazing. So we spent a semester there. Uh, and then I, I stayed on a little bit and traveled. I had a Eurorail pass. And um, yeah, it was, it was a, you know, I think it was a junior in college and it was like incredibly transformative. I was, you know, drawing the figure again, but I was taking art history classes. And I took a, a, a class on Leonardo da Vinci, which was, which was fascinating. And actually, I wrote a paper and gave a presentation 
on Sigmund Freud's psychoanalysis of Leonardo da Vinci, which was like amazing. So my, my dad is a psychiatrist. And so <laughs> that seemed to me like, okay, yeah, if I get, if I run into any questions, I can ask him, but it was really kind of, it was like a melding of these kind of two worlds. So I was, I was pretty into like getting into, into Renaissance art history pretty heavily, but also, you know, the art history classes were often taught or we met in churches. You know, so we would, we would go and look at these paintings instead of sitting in a room looking at slides. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it changed my entire perspective on the, on the world generally. Like, oh, this is how people live in Europe, for instance, which is different than how we live in the United States. And but also just the idea of being surrounded by this kind of rhythm and beauty and the architecture and the painting and uh, the, the the kind of way that the city moved from kind of medieval structures and I mean it was just spectacular. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt like I was I was living in history, you know. <laughs> I was going to say for me it just immediately makes me think of the way that I feel when I go to the D'Orsay Museum and I'm yeah. just kind of surrounded by killer painting after killer painting and there's just this kind of richness in terms of life that I don't know is just a little different than you know like a classic kind of you know white cube kind of experience or, you know, something that might be a little bit more challenging in terms of, you know, maybe materials are being super contemporary. There's just like this appreciation of life, this kind of like exploration, this journey that you kind of get a sense of when you're in a place where you're kind of witnessing all this work or kind of seeing it. Yeah. So again, that, that totally appeals to me. That, that makes sense. Um, yeah. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your transition then into your master's experience. Yeah. You know, master's programs are usually places where people kind of find themselves as artists, or at least that's the, I guess, part of the goal. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, especially like how in terms of your paintings now, there's kind of some, you know, maybe potential narratives or, you know, almost like a documentarian style kind of thing in terms of maybe some of the portraiture. And I'm just kind of curious if that would be something that, you know, got started in, in terms of graduate school, in terms of exploring subjects and talking about that reverence or whatnot. So, yeah, yeah. When I graduated from Syracuse, I moved back to Pittsburgh and that was a time where I started to figure out, like, okay. Where do I want to go to graduate school? What's the right fit? I knew that I needed to go to graduate school because I wanted to teach. You know, so that was like the major impetus for it. I needed a degree, the terminal degree in order to be a professor. But I also wanted the time, you know, and the focus and the kind of intensity of it. And so I I looked around a lot of different schools. I went to Baltimore to visit the Hofburger School of Painting. And uh, Grace Hartigan at the time was the uh, director of the program. And she had really started it some 30 years prior to my my involvement uh, when she moved from New York. And Grace Hardigan was this sort of, you know, part of the abstract expressionist movement, sort of second generation abstract expressionist movement. But she had already been, you know, in major collections and been in major exhibitions. And she's kind of a powerhouse. And the interesting thing about Grace is that she's largely a self-taught artist. So she went to sort of like evening classes, but mostly she learned to paint through getting to know all of the major players um, in the New York art world at the time. And so she kind of like found her way through it, which I find, which I find really interesting. But I was really in, inspired uh, when I met her. She had some really interesting and thoughtful responses to my work. And I thought it's a small program, which was appealing to me. I, I think that at the time, it probably is still that way. They were accepting seven students a year. So 14, 15 students would be in the program over the two-year period. And I kind of like that, the intensity of it, but also how she was 
really emphatic about the fact that this was a painting program, that we were going to be exploring painting, as opposed to an interdisciplinary program where some people were painting and some people were doing installations and whatever. And at the time, I wasn't exactly sure, you know, what my artistic voice was, because I, I, I should say also that in that year in between undergraduate and graduate program, I was doing some installation work and I was doing mm-hmm. some pieces that were inspired by my friends who were architects. And I was really even thinking about for maybe a month or so, I started to investigate whether or not I wanted to go to graduate school for architecture, but that was just a blip. Sure. <laughs> just, just a thought, you know? And so I, I, the point is I have a curious, I have curiosity about a lot of things in the arts. And as a viewer, I don't really discriminate between mediums, you know? Mm-hmm. I can be inspired by all kinds of things, you know? So part of that is like, in a pluralistic art world, how do you find your voice or how do you keep your inner compass? And I felt like the sense of focus and direction an intention in the program was helpful to me, and I liked that. I responded to it. Um, but the curious thing about this is that because Grace is a self-taught artist, some of the technical questions that I had about making paintings, about glazing, about scumbling, about you know qualities of light and pigments and all of these kind of ideas, these weren't things that I necessarily was going to get from her. I was getting other things about like big picture ideas, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the sense of history in painting or the sense of trying to find, again, that sense of, you know, ineffable kind of resonance or power in a painting. That was, that was something that I really uh, gained from her. But, and so in graduate school, I was, I started making some really, I don't know how to say it. You know, they were these kind of experimental pieces. So when I got there, I was making kind of large expressionistic paintings. Some of them were like five by eight feet, lots of paint, bodies, gestures. I was really inspired by Michelangelo's uh, Battle of the Lapis and the Centaurs, which is this early low relief uh, sculpture that he made where there were these figures kind of embroiled in some kind of struggle. And so a lot of the paintings in that time were built off of that idea about bodies kind of interacting with each other. And then I started to make these paintings that were kind of prints, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I would work on a painting, a gesture, uh, a figurative gesture. And then I usually there were two panels, sometimes more, but generally in pairs. And then I would take the painting that I was working on, which had a lot of paint on it, and I would fold it or press it into the other a panel, and they would make a sort of mirror image of each other. And I would work back and forth into both panels, kind of pressing and pulling them apart until I wound up with this kind of amalgamation, this um, Rorschach kind of image, a mirror image uh, kind of thing. And so I, I was making these these kind of mirror image pieces for a couple of years, really. You know, at a certain point, they started to really kind of close off for me. I mean, they were interesting as an initial investigation. I liked the idea of the print. I liked the idea of the multiple. I liked all the kind of strange things that would happen in the process of pressing and pulling apart. But they started to become really problematic for me because I couldn't get any nuance out of it. You know, I couldn't really say what I wanted to say. And I started to realize that the the kind of formal issues that had at once inspired me, this idea of kind of a calculated chance, you know, the kind of pressing and opening, that that was in some way restricting my ability to say what I wanted to say. So that's when I started to turn more towards this idea of sort of thinner paint, getting control of edges, starting to look towards the subtlety in faces and expressions as opposed to just some kind of large gestural kind of hulking mass of paint, a kind of implied form. 
I wanted to get more into the specifics because I felt like, to me, that was more personal. It was more, it was richer and it spoke to, instead of generalities and kind of universals, into something that was about the individual. And the individual, to me, that's where the stories were. So I was, I think, working from an art critical perspective. Um, how do these things function uh, from an art critical perspective? And I think that's the influence of graduate school. Uh, but moving more towards the idea of the personal story and how that can kind of open up an entire universe in a way. I also felt in graduate school, because there was all this kind of pressure to connect to critical theory and be sort of to some degree aware of in studio practice or make nods in studio practice to critical theory that the sort of critical theory started to interfere in a way with my painting practice and at some point I felt like I needed to kind of you know move away from all of that kind of sense of objective distance and start to you know pull people into this pictorial space or more to the point to be influenced by them you know so I think that's one of the interesting things about portraiture is that when I'm painting somebody and this really gets us into work in the past you know 10 years which I really think is my my life's work a lot mm -hmm. of the early stuff was just experimentation that when I'm engaged with the person over a period of time there's something that happens something that's very intimate and very real, kind of undeniable. The friendship starts to develop. I start to tell stories. They start to tell stories. We get to know each other. And there is this kind of coming together that I, I hope is kind of encoded or built into the painting, a sort of bringing together of two lives. And that, that to me is really significant. It's significant culturally, socially, and personally. You know, this idea about there's something radical about slowing down, <laughs> mm -hmm. something radical about getting to know people as they are, not as we expect them to be from some through some kind of cultural lens. You know, so to me, it's a kind of stripping away of that. Many people know about um, Maria Abramovich and some of her performances and one of her pieces that she did at the Museum of Modern Art. She sat down at a table and invited visitors to the museum to sit down in a chair across the table from her and then they make eye contact with each other for a period of time and I think you know that's there's something really quite beautiful about that these two strangers that have this meeting you know and it's you know it's arranged it's an art piece but there is something really kind of significant about that but I think that happens in portraiture too I mean it's a vehicle by which I can engage with people you know and that's to me where it really starts to to get rich it starts to feel like there's there's something in the specifics, in the particulars that that make it what it is. And I think that's one of the reasons why I started, again, to move away from these kind of, you know, generalities, these universals into the specifics. And we can see that in my work because there's lots of little idiosyncratic little details and little obsessions and visual kind of complexity and to me, again, I think that comes out of this idea of wanting to know something, not from a superficial level, but from a kind of you know, internal and nuanced kind of perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, again, it's interesting that you kind of talk about this kind of relationship. And, you know, one of the things that we kind of talked about unofficially before we started was the painting that drew me in, which was this painting of uh, Graham Shearing, which 
again, it sounds like that's exactly the kind of process that you were talking about. So maybe you could kind of break down a little bit, you know, like how long that, that painting took to transpire. That painting, right, I think is, is emblematic of uh, a lot of the work that I'm, I'm making now. And, and is, now it's very particular in the sense that not everybody's home looks like Graham's, right? I mean, he's, he's been collecting for a lifetime. And so it's filled with all of these objects. But you know, everybody's personal environment. And I usually, when I paint people, I try to paint them in their environment as opposed to bringing them to my studio. So every painting kind of has a little bit of uh, a different quality to it. But the, the painting of Graham happened over a period of a year. And we would meet every Friday morning or most Friday mornings for two to three hours for or a two to three hour session. And in that time, I was painting him to some degree, obviously, but I was also painting the environment and all the shapes and textures and and artifacts that that surrounded me. And so in some way, you know, that piece is about Graham as seen through his collection. And so the the heads, all of the heads on the table in the foreground um, were in a way arranged by Graham. He wanted these things to be seen or be present in in the piece. So when you're in the home, one of the first things that struck me uh, when I visited his house was was that human likeness gets intermixed with all of the images of faces and paintings on the wall and sculptures. And so there's this idea about you know, this kind of psychology from moving from an artifact into a real person. And so to me, it was about sort of tying Graham into that kind of sort of pictorial universe. So he's kind of lost in the space, but also very present. I mean, that was part of the idea. Um, and so when I started the painting, I started with sketches. And then slowly, I started to build this kind of loose underpainting. And so I never start a painting with a really fixed uh, composition. I have clear ideas about where I want to start, but I allow the painting to kind of move and shift. So I don't start with a really strict or tight underpainting. I allow the painting to kind of evolve and change. And some of the objects on the table, actually, because he lived there (laughs) and it was over a very long period of time, would actually move. And so I would have to kind of, you know, work with that or reorganize things, but also understanding the way the light changed in the space. And, but I wanted it to be, you know, about this, the sense of kind of fullness of a life lived in the arts. And, it, you know, it's a very inspiring place to be. And Graham's an art historian and an arts writer, was an art dealer for a time. And I think he has this kind of really attuned eye. And so a lot of the conversations that we had revolved around art and artistic practice and, you know, getting to know each other through discussion about art and life. Well, and so I guess from a technical perspective, I'm curious then too, in terms of like allowing the underpainting to kind of shift and all that, I'm assuming then you're kind of working like, like lean to, to thick. Right. Yeah. Sorry. When I look at this, I just kind of am like baffled, you know, like, I'm Mm -hmm. just like, I know how I paint. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's very, uh, different, you know what I mean? So like, it's just so, so much of a different process. And so I'm just kind of fascinated to think about how, you know, an object can entirely shift or, you know, how you kind of plan to kind of work through it in stages, even if you're kind of, you know, working from lean to fat and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of like allowing for all these kind of glazes. Right. It's interesting. Like, are you able then to kind of work on the entire painting, you know, at the same time, or are you kind of, you know, working and refining each area until you kind of work through the whole thing and then just start over that process and start over that process until eventually you're, you feel like you're home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the idea of painting for me is about developing a way to change my mind, you know? And so when I started into this process of tight figuration, a rendering, I had to kind of really think through some of my earlier education, but then kind of think, well, maybe there's other ways to do this. And so one of the processes I use to be able to change my mind is, is glazing and scumbling. So I will sometimes take an area a section of a painting, sometimes the whole painting, but a section of a painting, and glaze it back. That means I'm darkening everything from the lights down to the shadows. And that, now that glaze could have, you know, a couple of colors mixed into that, but I'm starting to work with medium. And that kind of allows everything to kind of uh, darken, to gray out a little bit, but I lose edges. I lose some of the, you know, sharpness of the painting in a way. And then I slowly start to build that back out. But I would also say that at the end and that means to kind of sharpen from the kind of soft edges. And that allows me the ability to kind of reshape forms. But I would also say that usually at the end of each session, I will kind of blur things down. If I'm not sure about it, I'll kind of soften the forms. And again, that gives me the ability to kind of shift those edges around. So instead of committing to an edge from an early stage in the painting, I allow that edge to be kind of open and porous and kind of foggy in a way, and then slowly I start to articulate it. So there's this idea of kind of pushing and pulling, and I'm very willing to get rid of big passages in the painting if they're not working. And that, that's, that's, that's like a really important thing to me because I, when I went to Italy, for instance, to backtrack for a second, I would look at these, like, like a Pontormo portrait in particular, there was one that really struck me. And I thought, this guy got the drawing right from the beginning. Like the underpainting is visible and he kind of built his lights down into the underpainting. And so there must have been some kind of exactitude. It must have been just right from the beginning, you know. And so I thought, well, okay, drawing, that's the way to do it. I've got to really get my drawing right so that when I start to build my uh, lighter forms on top of it, everything lands in just the right way. And so I tried to make paintings that way. And invariably, I would screw something up, right? Because that's, mm -hmm. that's the process of painting. And then I realized, so I took a master class with Vincent Desiderio at uh, Pennsylvania Academy. This was years ago. And I realized in conversation with him and in listening to the way that he talks about painting, that there's this idea of regrounding in a way, that by glazing or pushing things back, you start to kind of bring back the feeling of an underpainting. So that means that you could have been working wet on wet for for weeks on something, you know, or for hours on something. And then if you glaze it back, you then reground it and have another opportunity to kind of build the lights again. Does that make sense? So, that, mm -hmm. so that, that's like a big part of the way that I work. Um, so there's a, a painting of, uh, of my wife, which is a kind of very blue, soft blue-gray tone. And that painting would kind of go back and forth between sort of warm flesh tones and this kind of cool color. And so at some point, you know, she had a kind of vampiric mm -hmm. <laughs> quality to her because I wanted the kind of atmospheric cool light to kind of be under the skin tones. And so this idea of pushing and pulling, painting and repainting, for me, learning to paint was learning how to repaint, mm -hmm. you know, that, that my ability to repaint something and kind of maybe not necessarily hide my tracks, but kind of like find some kind of presence that maybe was really only slightly similar to where it started. That to me is when I started to really gain traction as a painter, I feel like.
Yeah. So again, that idea of glazing and, and scumbling or building darks over lights or light over darks and that kind of interchange between sort of transparency, semi-transparency, opacity, wet on wet blending slowly starts to bring everything into focus. So I kind of feel like it's this kind of slow kind of tightening in a way, or as I get closer and closer to the target um, as the as the painting evolves. And that target isn't necessarily... I didn't maybe see it in the beginning. You know, that's the other thing. Is that when I started painting, I may have a general sense of what I'm after or what I think is the right approach to a piece. And then in the process of working, it may actually re- reveal itself in, as having a different nature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another piece that I'm kind of curious about too, which kind of seems to, looks like it incorporates your whole family um, yeah. through reflections is this night window painting. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that painting also took about a year. <laughs> <laughs> Not all of my paintings take that long. Some of them I finish in a day or two, but um, and we can talk about that. But the, sure. the, the, that, that painting in particular took a long time to, to build. Initially, when I started the painting, I was off to the left of the piece because I didn't want my reflection to be in the center mm-hmm. of the piece. So then the perspective kind of leaned in. So the, the window head was kind of slightly tilted. But eventually I decided that wasn't right. So I had to kind of rebuild the, the window frame and the, you know, lots of parallel lines and re-rendering of that of that shape but i've left my reflection out of it so you can see my wife sort of in in the background and then my son in the foreground you know thumbing through a book i spent so much time working on that piece that i actually had to repaint my son so there's another painting of him underneath that Mm -hmm. where he's younger and slightly smaller (laughs) (laughs) so he grew and so i changed it and you can kind of slightly see where the edge of where his head used to be. But yeah, so that, that painting evolved over a long period of time. And there's a lot of glazing and scumbling and the sense of like reflection, sort of uh, opacity and transparency. That was something I really struggled with. But I think the transparency of glazing and scumbling are, um, is what makes it work as a painting. Um, and that if I had tried to paint it just wet on wet, it w- I probably would not have gotten the same kind of sense of life out of it. So to me, indirect painting gives this really beautiful range of values um, and a a range of colors and complexity that I personally can't find uh, when I'm working sort of a la prima or wet on wet. You know, there's a different kind of approach to, to thinking about color and form. Well, and there's a nice kind of, you know, reflected surface that almost kind of acts as a mirror. And I kind of like the way that then your your family's incorporated that, you know, and again, slightly different than uh, where you started, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Well, so are there other, you know, paintings that are kind of significant to you that you'd like to highlight? Uh, sure. So one of the more recent paintings that I um, really love is a painting of my professor, Jerome Whitkin. I'd had the idea for years uh, to, to paint his portrait, but I didn't, I guess, in a way, have the nerve <laughs> to do it in a sense, because here I am, you know, painting the, this this artist who I really greatly admire and who was my teacher. So, but I, I, I wrote him a letter and we had corresponded. Um, he's actually one of the only people I write letters to. I mail these things, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I have years of, of, of letters that, of correspondence. And he's been very generous in that way. So I wrote him a letter and I asked him if he would be willing to do this. And he said yes. And so we drove up. Uh, my wife and son came with me and made a trip out of it, sort of vacation. But I spent two days in his studio starting the painting and talking with him. We worked almost eight hours each day, uh, which, again, was very generous. But here I am in his studio surrounded by all of his paintings. You know? <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, OK, where do I start? You know, I just had to kind of <laughs> inhale and kind of try to focus and get into it. Uh, but we talked about, I mean, we talked, you know, almost the entire time and it was, it was fantastic. And to be able to get to know him, 
you know, as an adult, as a painter in my own right, was really something I'll never forget. And so the, the painting kind of evolved from a couple of drawings, and then I started the painting there in person, and then I finished it from photographs and from the sketches that I had. Um, and that painting, I was fortunate enough to have it exhibited at the National Gallery in London as part of the uh, VP Portrait Awards uh, in 2017. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that, that was a kind of you know, it just it felt amazing that that I had, you know, I had the opportunity to be part of that exhibition, but that I could do it in a way with Jerome. I mean, it really felt like the right the right painting and the right kind of experience, you know. But that that painting, to me, is one of the pieces that gets into, you know, the, a kind of subtlety of expression. And so when I was painting him, he was actually looking at one of his paintings in process. So uh, when we were kind of silent, he would look at his work and think about it. And and it happened to be a painting about his childhood. So it was he and his identical twin brother and his his mom and his kind of tumultuous scene with his mom and his sister. And it's kind of, you know, it's an intense kind of, you know, a psychological drama that he was working on. And so we don't necessarily know that by looking at my painting of him, but there is a kind of intensity, I think, in the way that he's He's, you know, staring or, or looking at things. But I also felt like somehow the idea of depicting Jerome in kind of an intense gaze speaks to his life as a painter, right? Because we, as painters, really focus intensely on things visually. And so to me, that 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 was a really important aspect of the piece. And I think that's one of the reasons why I kind of brought it in so close to the face as opposed to developing some kind of environmental piece or full body painting. I really wanted it to be about his expression and his eyes. And he's, he's seen reproductions of it, but he hasn't seen the painting in person. I would love for him to see it in person one day. <laughs> well, and again, I mean, this is another painting where, you know, when you look at the detail, you know, there's just so many small kind of things going on on the surface, you know, or at least what it looks yeah. like via digitally. Right. Again, is that like a lot of pressure too to kind of figure out how to, solve something that you might normally want to have a year for or 16 hours is a lot of time in a short amount of time, but still. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was, I, I, I mean, I worked on that painting for, you know, weeks of time. And the other thing too, is that because I teach, I'm not always in the studio every day. And so it's hard for me to gauge how long I spend on something, you know, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, I mean, I, I spent, I spent, you know, weeks, if not a month of time working on that painting. And so that came from the photographs, of course, but it also came from the drawings that I had made in the drawing, you know, I can get a lot farther in a drawing in a short period of time than I can in a painting. And so, but it was also about kind of pushing and pulling it. And one of the tricky things about portraiture is that there has to be some degree of accuracy about it. You know, I mean, there's this kind of sense that I wanted the eye to be in the right place. I wanted the shape of the nose to be his nose, not just a nose, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, kind of working edges and shifting things. When we're rendering as painters, sometimes we get that kind of brain zoom where we focus intensely on one small area. And that can be problematic because sometimes it starts to separate out from the rest of the painting, you know? So this idea about working quickly, that's one way to kind of, you know, look at the whole painting. But in my way of painting, I need to slow down and paint a specific section, you know? So I might spend a whole session kind of working an eye socket, say, you know? Mm And so how do then how do I make that work with the the skin of the body that the skin of paint somehow is consistent like the skin of the body and again that to me comes through the idea of glazing and scumbling these are unifying uh, methods of unifying surface or kind of losing something and then kind of pulling it back out again seeing the forest through the trees or the specifics as it relates to the to the larger teeth but yeah I I think I'm after a, a really kind of specific sense of resonance and 
in some aspects of the painting, it's, uh, let's say the painting of Graham Shearing, for instance, there are passages in that painting that are actually quite loose and not intensely descriptive, but there are other areas that are really tightly descriptive. And what's curious about that is that psychologically we have this effect. If we see something that's really tightly rendered, it affects the rest of the painting as though every part of it has that same level of detail. And I think that's true even in a face, that one eye may have more focus, for instance, and another eye is a little more loosely painted. And that kind of gives us this feeling of, you know, looking across the surface as we might look face to face with somebody. So one thing that, that that's, I think I point out to my students sometimes is that when we make eye contact with people, we don't look two eyes to two eyes. We look two eyes to one eye. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so like we shift our eyes around quite a bit. So this idea of selective focus or rendering certain portions of a face more intensely than other portions of a face, you know, that, that to me speaks to the idea of vision and how we actually see. And photography isn't that way. So the photographs that I took of him actually are quite different from the painting. They don't have the same kind of light and the edges are rendered differently by the camera, by the digital camera than, than how I rendered them as a painter. So I allow myself the opportunity to kind of you know, paint from other paintings in a way. Like I, I'm inspired by how, I don't know, Titian handles an edge or something or the way that they handle color or I, you know, and that, that kind of sort of has an influence in the way that I make decisions, even if I'm looking at a photo. And are the drawings then you kind of mentioned that you kind of are able to work through them pretty quickly. Is that, is that something then that kind of serves as a way in to kind of decide what it is that you want to, you know, if you want to invest, you know, weeks and weeks into something? Yeah, exactly. Right. I think that that's a really good point because there is this idea that, okay, if I'm going to work on something, I know it's going to take me a year or months, I better really care about it, you know? (laughs) And you're right. So drawing is that way. And I have lots of drawings that never see the light of day. I have flat files filled with drawings that, that maybe I thought were a good idea, but weren't, you know? And, um, and other times I, I have an idea that I, in my head, uh, I'm sure I'm not uh, alone in this, but I have an idea in my head, but I'm not quite sure how to make it a painting, you know, and sometimes mm-hmm. that, that evolves over time. So I may have an idea from a couple of years ago and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the way that I want to do this. And so it's this kind of continuum. It's this kind of ebb and flow. And I often have more than one thing going on in the studio. And so I bounce back and forth between several pieces. Um, sometimes that can get me into trouble because if I have too many paintings open at once, <laughs> you know, sure. I just feel like I'm constantly working, but, you know, only small things are happening. But, um, but yeah, the, the drawings are a way forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a nice way to kind of be able to explore then so that you're not always kind of intensely focused on resolving this kind of one thing. That's right. Yeah. And again, I would think that would also kind of relate then to some of the other studies like the landscape paintings and, you know, things that are kind of maybe, I don't know. I mean, cause you have maybe one uh, landscape painting in the, in your, you know, paintings area, but then you have a number of these smaller kind of studies. Is that something kind of like that experience of being in Italy where you're just kind of soaking it up and, trying to, you know, resonate with this landscape and then try to, at the same time, not get sunburned. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely that issue. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So several of the paintings, uh, there are uh, made in Civita Castellana, which is where, um, Israel Hirschberg has his summer, uh, Jerusalem studio school program. Yeah. they, They were, they were made, I was there for two weeks, um, and they were made, fairly quickly. And I, I had made some landscapes prior to, to that. And this was three years ago or so, but I hadn't really kind of you know, invested myself 
in landscape painting in a serious way. And that that program and my experience there as a resident really started to open up my thinking about the possibilities of landscape. And then we take uh, trips often to Block Island, Rhode Island in the summer. And, uh, and so I started making paintings there. And then slowly I started to move into making paintings of, of Pittsburgh. And uh, the painting of the Allegheny River which is a, a larger painting and a more sort of finished piece, meaning there's a lot more kind of complexity to it. Maybe finish isn't the right word because, the, you know, this, the, sm- this, the shorter uh, time period of a painting doesn't necessarily mean that it's less or more finished. But, but it's a more involved painting, maybe mm-hmm. is the way to say it. That was actually a commission by a, a local architect. And I think that, you know, my understanding of landscape as, as a motif is really starting to expand in my work. So I have several landscapes of in and around uh, Pittsburgh that are developing in the studio, and they're more along the lines of the Allegheny River painting, where I go back to the same site time and time again. Instead of having to work through something in one or two sessions, I really spend, I had the luxury in a way of going back to the site and and revisiting the, the the place and so to me then the landscapes are starting to become a little bit more like my portraits or my figurative pieces where I can kind of return to a subject again and again and again there's this kind of sense of desire of a deepening in a way of getting closer to something and yeah so I think the, the landscapes are kind of moving more in that direction well and it's interesting because then it, it seems like you've got a lot of these different you know avenues of exploration and then at the same time, by kind of, you know, exploring things through drawing or, you know, through doing studies, you know, it kind of allows you to decide what, what's going to be really developed. And I would imagine then there's probably a lot of stuff that you have that's in that process still that, you know, we're going to see six months from now or, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, at this point, I have five paintings that are kind of open, I would say. You know, I don't often kind of share works in process in part because... I'm kind of mired in them. I'm thinking about them. They're kind of evolving. And maybe I should show more kind of process stages of things. But usually I, I kind of let them out into the world after they've been done for a period of time. You know, so it's not even like I finish something and then it's that day I, de- I declare it's done. And then I send the image out into the world. You know, I really feel like, you know, it's a, a kind of slower process. And sometimes after a month, of sitting there in the studio, I may reopen a painting because I realize that it isn't where I want it to be. So having having time to do that is really important to me. Yeah, and again, it kind of speaks to this you know relationship that you have with you know all your subjects. It seems like you know it's not a first glance. Essentially, it's kind of like this you know deep investigation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, I think that's really important to me, and to me that makes it a, a really valid and great way to spend my time in my life, you know, sort of getting to know things. And I think painting, just like a novelist or something, you know, like might say to themselves as they develop the characters in their novels or as they develop the visual world that their characters inhabit, you know, that that there's this kind of deepening and complexity. And the more that writer works, the, the richer that world gets. And that's actually something that Grace Hardigan used to say to us in graduate school, she'd talk about the idea of painting a world, you know, like, what is that world? And in her world, it was a much more abstract kind of pictorial language. But there, there is a kind of world that, that certain painters 
find. And I think I'm still maybe looking for that, or maybe I found it, who knows, you know, but, <laughs> but I think there's this sense of a kind of a voice, like we, we, we know certain painters work as soon as we encounter it. And that's because that the, the light, the texture, the color, the form, the content is all kind of merged in this indivisible thing, you know? And I think to me that comes from this, again, this kind of deepening of an investigation or putting yourself into it. And there is some degree of kind of obsession, I think, that comes with this, you know? Um, the, the idea of wanting to see something or desiring to make something. And, and um, but also I think there, there's a kind of coded language in paint, you know, the kind of index that, that, that there's a, a kind of thread that runs through it. So I'm, I'm very inspired by Antonio Lopez Garcia, very inspired by Jerome, of course, by Israel Hirschberg, by many people that I've met. But I'm also really inspired by artists that have died a long time ago, you know, sure. who, you know, who culturally are, you know, worlds apart from me. But but there's something about the kind of human spirit that lives that lives in their work that I feel I can connect to. So when we go to museums as painters, you know, we read these things not just as cultural artifacts, but as kind of, you know, borrowing the eyes of the artist who made it, you know, that we get to see the world through their eyes or that sense of connection to people. And so to, to me, painting is, is a way to do that, you know, literally connecting me to other people through the process of portraiture, but also sort of connecting me to the world as an observer, as somebody who wants to be open to experience in a way. And I think landscape really does that. It starts to bring us out of ourselves into the world, but portraiture does that too, because it's about, not just about me, it's about the identity of the person that I'm painting, uh, a kind of biography in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, so is there anything that's kind of coming up in in terms of exhibitions or, you know, things that you're particularly excited about in terms of developing, uh, you know, maybe down the road or in the near future? I just uh, wrapped up an exhibition at the Westmoreland Museum of Art where I had a couple paintings and an exhibition called Artists Who Teach, which is a really fantastic show. So I'm just kind of coming down from a couple of exhibitions. I don't know, maybe three years ago or so, I was in like uh, 12 shows or something in a year. And it was like, it was too much. <laughs> you know? I mean, it was great. I'm, I'm glad I had the opportunity, but I started to feel like I was painting towards opportunities as opposed to just painting. So I think my plan for the next year is to sort of be in the studio working intensely. And I have in mind uh, a solo exhibition. That's my hope when I can kind of wrap up, especially a series of paintings that I've been developing uh, over the past year here. So I, my, my hope is to kind of find the right venue or venues to put the solo work out there into the world. Uh, but I just finished building and renovating my my studio, which is kind of an amazing thing mm-hmm. for me. Uh, it is our two-car garage, and I worked with a local contractor to help me with some of the heavy lifting, and then I did some of the work myself. But it's a space that's you know, made for what I do in it. And that's, I've just finished it like uh, <laughs> about, a, about a month ago. So I'm just kind of new into the space. So I want to really kind of just focus in on, on my work and spend, you know, the next year um, building, you know, towards a solo exhibition. I think that's my, my short term goal is just to try to find myself in these paintings again, again, not just kind of painting towards upcoming shows or exhibition opportunities or competitions, but really just trying to find some sense of internal balance. I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I'm really excited about the new studio space, but to me, it's this kind of celebratory thing that since I was like a, 
you know, serious about painting. I've never had a space that has been completely dedicated right. um, to painting. And I, I mean, I've worked in lots of post-industrial spaces, but this was like, this is my, my creation in a way. And I, I'm just totally in love with it. <laughs> and it's, and it's su- super inspiring to, to be in the space. Well, and so obviously people can go to davidstanger.com to see some of your work. Again, I know you're on Instagram, but what's your handle so that people can follow you there? At Instagram is at uh, stangerdavid. And you can find me on uh, Facebook also. I, I'm, I'm pretty accessible. All of my posts are, are, are public. So, And, and I, I find that, you know, sh- the sort of sharing work uh, in this community is a really great thing. I, we were chatting about this earlier, but the idea of having a community of artists, and I think your podcast is kind of supporting all of that in a way. So thank you for that. I mean, I think we, we all appreciate um, artists that are kind of working to kind of collect us, you know, mm-hmm. in a sense, or bring us together in commonality. And so I, I feel like that's the, that's the positive quality of Instagram and Facebook of bringing people together and getting to see all of the great things that, that, that everyone's doing, you know, and to, and to celebrate that. I think that that's a big part of it. Um, so yeah, I look forward to connecting with people on social media. And, and you know, the curious thing about that too, is that uh, many of these paintings that I feel like I know I've really only seen a digital form, you know, so like to actually see a painting in person is kind of a, a rare thing, you know? <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think again, it's, it's better that we can share what we're doing and feel like we're part of a sense of community. And, and it, again, I think painters tend to be insular people or, you know, appreciate kind of quiet, uh, alone time in the studio. But again, there's something nice about being connected to others and, um, Instagram and Facebook are great ways to do that. Absolutely. You know, I, I was going to say, I'm glad that I managed to reach out, experiencing your work in the same way. And, you know, I, I just really enjoyed this conversation and thankful that you took the time. And, you know, thanks for coming on and talking to me all about your work. Sure. Th- thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and hopefully in the kind of rambling, uh, <laughs> meandering discussion that, um, that that it may, you know, it makes some sense or or um, allows people to understand my work a little bit better. But thank you again for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm glad we had the chance to get to know each other. Hopefully we'll have a chance to meet in person one of these days. Absolutely. Thanks again to David for joining me. You can check out his artwork at davidstanger.com and be sure to follow him on Instagram at stangerdavid. If you enjoyed today's episode, please check out our archive on studiobreak.com. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's work as well as links to their websites and these lengthy interviews. You can listen right there in the default player or just hit that iTunes link and subscribe to the podcast. That way you never miss one. Of course, if you want to leave us some feedback there, it's always great to help other people find this. You can also do that, of course, by sharing. So please do that since it's the holiday season. We'd really appreciate it. Be sure to follow Studio Break on social media. So like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. We do preview some of the guests coming up, so if you've got questions, leave them there. And, of course, we are going to be doing some live videos right before on Instagram, so please be sure and say hello, check in. Again, thanks to Jen Gulgren and Erica Hess for checking it out. As always, thanks to Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his artwork at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, please visit DavidLinaway.com. I have a sale going on right now through December with free domestic shipping on tons of different bodies of work. Again, paintings start as low as 150 So if you need something for your home, please check it out. 
And now for that announcement, I'll be giving away a free painting. Temporal DQ2 will be given out to an Instagram follower who follows me, Studio Break, as well as tags some friends and leaves a comment on that painting. So check it out at David Linaway on the Instagram feed. Just go there, leave some comments, and hit it up. You can also find me on Facebook and, of course, on Twitter at David Linaway. And with that being said, you've listened to another episode of Studio Break. Hope that you enjoyed it. We'll talk to you real soon.